Welcome to Careers for the Blind. My name is Harrison Hoyes, and I'm losing my sight to retinitis pigmentosa. As my vision continues to get worse, I wanted to have conversations with other blind and visually impaired people to see what advice they may have to offer and keep me motivated and inspired and continuing to strive to do the best that I can in my career. I know I'm not the only person going through this type of situation. So my hope is other people will benefit from hearing these conversations the way that I've been benefiting from them. And in this way, I'll be able to give to others what my guests have been so generous to give to me. In March 2021, I had a conversation with Pat McKenna. Pat lost his sight from a very early age, but was able to continue on to high school, college, and complete his law degree. After being a lawyer for a number of years, he found his passion for working in the nonprofit world, where he worked at the Seeing Eye, and today is the director of the EDGE program, which stands for Employment, Development, Guidance, and Engagement. The EDGE program is run by the Family Resource Network and funded by the New Jersey Commission for the Blind and Visually Impaired. Here's my conversation with Pat. Thanks again for spending some time with me to share your story. Can you tell me a little bit about some of your first experiences with vision loss? Of course. Yeah. So I I went blind or I became blind at the age of five to um, a relatively rare autoimmune disease called TEN, T-E-N uh, syndrome. Now I'm, I'm from Morris County, New Jersey originally. And, and I think as is so often the case with students or uh, children who are, who are blind, um, I, I was the only, the only blind kid in town and in school. So I had a number of, as you can imagine, teachers and, and school administrators, my mom, who were, were sort of trying to figure everything out. Um, there wasn't there wasn't really any, any, any experience or knowledge there. I think that's maybe not uncommon for a lot of blind kids, you know, to be the only, the only individual with that disability in, in their school. Mm -hmm. So I, I uh, had a case opened with New Jersey commission for the blind and visually impaired. Um, I, I very quickly embraced uh, Braille and then later audiobooks. I was, highly resistant to uh, orientation and mobility travel for, for quite a while. It wasn't until college that I, I really did embrace uh, cane travel. Um, once I, I, I sort of got a better understanding of what the actual benefits and applications might be. Where I grew up, there, there weren't really any places to go independently. So uh, to improve one's independent travel skills and there's nowhere to go tends to be a little bit of a hard case to make. Sure. Uh, so my, my, my plan going into college and then grad school after was the practicing of environmental law. So uh, that, that was, that was the, the driver. That was the goal. Um, the college I attended Lafayette college in Pennsylvania is a smaller school um, and, uh, I of course worked with the DSO, the disability service office there. And that went absolutely, absolutely fine. Academic accommodations. Also, I never had any issues. The same okay. was, the same was true for graduate school. I went to Rutgers, New Brunswick, uh, where I earned a master's in environmental science. I found the same to be true there as well. Now, of course, Rutgers is much larger, and although 
it and Lafayette had many differences. They, I did not have any, any real challenges there with either getting around or my academic accommodations. Okay. Law school was when I began to sort of pick up on that, that there's something, there's something else. There's another, there's this, there's darker uh, undertone to conversations and questions about what I can do or my capability, the expectations of, of, of what I might be able to do after graduation, which was something I, I hadn't really encountered too much before. Um, I worked through it. I worked past it. I graduated in three years, and I, I passed the bar. To step immediately into a situation that I, I, was, I was completely unprepared for, and that is the, the issues with getting interviewed and getting job offers as, as a blind man in, in, in New Jersey. To put it simply, I felt as though the, the individuals who were interviewing me, and I, I interviewed with small firms, large firms, different types of companies, were, were, were not at all, not remotely at all, happy or comfortable to see me sitting at the table across from them. And of course, if someone isn't happy and if somebody isn't comfortable, that does not lend itself to getting that job offer. Not mm -hmm. at all, actually. They're, they are probably, though I couldn't have told you for sure, watching the clock until the requisite amount of time had passed before they could shake my hand and send me out the door. And, and I could tell it, it was about, it was about the disability. It was about, it was about the blindness. It was about the guide dog who would be still and silent sleeping, sleeping at my feet. And I, I found that I learned sort of the hard way that not disclosing beforehand could result in some extraordinarily uncomfortable moments. And mm -hmm. I realized this is sort of a personal choice. There's not really a right or wrong. It's more what, what you might be more or less comfortable with or what you might want to endure. Here's the downside, of course. If you disclose beforehand, you might end up finding your interview gets magically canceled for some uh, unknown reason, right? Mm -hmm. the, the partners are out that day, they might say. Um, okay, and well, let me know when we can reschedule. And, and of course, you don't get that call. The, the flip side, though, if you don't communicate or telegraph that beforehand, that's, that is a lot of effort to go through. It's transportation, it's travel. Maybe it's money, too, right? Maybe it's a train trip or a bus or an Uber. Maybe you tapped a buddy for a ride. So you're spending time and energy and money and maybe friend capital, if that's, if that's a phrase. And to say nothing of time, and now you're there and you might have the great misfortune of watching someone realize you're disabled right there in front of you and have a bit of a, a, bit of a meltdown over it, which mm -hmm. is spectacularly awkward. And... It doesn't mean it, it lends itself to not getting that job offer. I found that I just didn't want to go through that any longer. And so I would always communicate beforehand my disability in ways like this. I'd say, um, 
well, I'm going to be arriving by um, by train. Can you describe to me a few things I might hear as I get closer to your building? Because I'm I'm going to be using sound landmarks, right? Well, that's that's one way to sort of get get across to the the person on the phone that that person might be traveling a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Now, did I end up with interviews magically canceled at the last minute? You bet. All the time I did. However, had I gone in in person and sat there across from them, I have no reason to think that things would have gone any better for me had I gone through that effort, spent that time and spent that money to go in for the same rejection. What advice would you have for people other than other than not going to the the interviews where you get canceled yeah. on? Mm-hmm. Uh, what other advice do you have to help people to actually get the job or land the job? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So something that I, I feel like we probably all end up getting a good deal of when we're job hunting, right? We're recently out of grad school, recent college grad, you're interviewing. I think there is a a tendency for friends and family to really push and encourage you to apply, apply, apply. And there's probably a drive inside of each of us, this concept of, well, the more, what's the phrase? Irons in the fire, right? The more irons in the fire, the better my chances. So I'm going to go on Indeed. I'm going to go through the the career hunting site from my own university. I'm going to look on LinkedIn. You know, you, you you make this list and you hit it every day and you're producing resumes and cover letters at this frenetic pace. You're sending them in all directions and you start to get some some hits. People contact you. They want to do a phone screening. They want you to come in for an interview these are, these are contacts that you have no background with, no context. You know nobody. Well, yes, you, you, you have very much increased the number of applications out there. But these, these applications, these, these jobs you're pursuing, this quantity over quality, um, is, is going to result in a tremendous a tremendous personal cost to the individual who's going through that. And I'm not talking about the time spent generating cover letters and the time spent on the phone and the time going to the, these interviews. It's, um, it's the cost that we end up paying when we are continuously and repeatedly rejected because rejection has its own, has its own costs. Mm -hmm. And you, you come out of, each of those interviews that failed uh, and, and knowing it failed, right? Cause you can always tell when it doesn't go well. Um, you come out a little diminished and you come out feeling as though you've just lost a little piece of your soul again and again and again. And soon enough uh, that really begins to hit one's self-esteem and one's confidence and that is a terrible, terrible price to pay. So I encourage people to, as opposed to going with that gut response of, hey, I got to hit all of these sites and get as many applications out as I can. Don't take the quantity approach, take the quality approach. And 
Look for opportunities to volunteer and to network and to meet people. Pursue contacts you might have had through uh, undergrad or grad school or through your professors, uh, maybe through internships. Meet, talk, call. Maybe it means some volunteer work. Um, see who they can introduce you to. Network, network, network. You know that old that old adage. It's not what you know, but who, but who you know. Mm-hmm. And the re and and this takes hours, many hours. I mean, this is a this is a this to when done right, it's a big endeavor. It takes a long time, but it should. It has to. Because what you're doing is you're not just meeting people and opening doors. You are also opening their minds to this new concept for many of them. Not not all of them, many of them. That that a person who is blind or low vision can do it and get the job done. Because it's entirely possible they don't know that or they don't realize that. And... Why is that? Well, blindness isn't exactly a high percentile disability out there in the community. So it's very possible you're the first blind person they've ever met. That's reasonable. I can imagine that. So we can we can forgive them their 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 ignorance. That's all right. Give them a pass. No problem. Um, the next hurdle I feel like is they are not going to know how we do things. We might do things differently. We might travel by cane or guide dog. We might use software with names such as JAWS for Windows or or Zoom text. Well, that's not how they do things. They do things differently. They navigate the internet differently. They check their email differently. They get to work differently. So, so now they, they're not sure how we do what we do, and they could get caught up on that. And maybe the more important thing to focus on is not how we do it, but that we get it done. And they don't need to understand the intricacies of JAWS for Windows or Zoom text. That's all right. To, you know, it's, they, that, that's fine. Or how Braille displays work. Or how a guide dog does what a guide dog does. Maybe instead what they need to focus on is that these are all tools that get us to where we need to be, that get the job done. They look a bit different. But that doesn't mean they don't work or that they don't work well. They work great, in fact. And that's what their minds need to be opened too. That doesn't happen overnight. It can be a little bit of an adjustment. And the more time you spend with the networking and the relationship developing, the more you're making those impressions, the more you're opening doors and opening minds and educating. And soon enough, the interviewer who would have had a full-blown meltdown seeing a blind applicant walk in for a job is going to be moving more into the realm of, well, I'm not quite sure how it is she does this, or I'm not quite sure how it is he navigates around, but you know, they do it. And he or she, they, they went to law school 
And I and I'm I'm not sure how how that would have worked, but they they did it. And you know what? If they can do that, and if they can get here, well, using these methods and techniques and tools that have they have at their disposal, then you know what? Maybe they can do this job too. And and that's that is the hill I feel we are climbing when we are interviewing and and looking for employment working through that ignorance sounds so negative but there's no better word to use working through that ignorance and some of those negative preconceptions Mm -hmm. um, because those negative preconceptions well they're not going to help you get that job offer they're really not they're really not basically this takes a while Right. I mean, this this takes patience and and diligence and it can be disheartening. And I would always encourage the, the, the younger people with whom I work, develop a support structure, um, people to whom you might speak, people who have gone through this before you or people who are going through it now, um, because you, you're going to need to talk to people about it. And to share your feelings or just blow off steam because your, your sighted family members and, fa- and relations and your, your sighted friends, they, they might not fully get it. Actually, they, they probably won't get it. That's why I think networking with people in the blindness community is so, so valuable. If nothing else, then to just exchange war stories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is there anything that you would suggest that people say in the interview that helps bring that person around to the realization that they don't need to know how? Yeah, absolutely. So so we all know there are certain questions interviewers are not to ask, right? We know that. We also know that a lot of them are going to ask those questions anyway. You know, that's that's going to happen. It's going to happen all the time. Um, when you come in and you sit down and they come in and they sit down and you're sitting at the big fancy table in the conference room or wherever, and your guide dog is at your feet, or maybe your cane is by your chair, you have your braille display on the table. Um, I would recommend taking a few moments to, to work those items into the conversation because they're going to be wondering they're going to want to know what that thing is, that Braille display on the desk or the dog at your feet or the cane. And I feel like putting that out front, being transparent, being honest, putting, putting it in the context of, hey, here are the tools I use in order to get done the things I need to get done. This is a piece of technology that allows me to do the following, right? And you can work in things such as, yeah, this is, this, is, this is the method by which I travel independently. Yeah, I took the train here and I, I walked to your office. No problem. This is how I did it. This Braille display is how I'm going to be taking notes here today. I have a handful of questions I'll be reading off. And occasionally you're going to see me writing down um, a few answers and, and, uh, and so on points you might raise. Or uh, this laptop, um, it speaks. You'll 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 notice I'm going to be putting in some earphones. I don't want the screen reading software speech to distract you. But as you would, I'm sure, imagine this is how I navigate the internet and work on 
spreadsheets or do my research or or what have you. Be sure to work in those key verbs that might be um, particularly relevant for the job we're talking about. Now, of course, you you would use phrasing such as, as you would imagine, this is how I would do the following things. Of course, they probably didn't imagine it, so you're kind of giving them the benefit of the doubt. But people always appreciate when you give them the benefit benefit of the doubt. If, if takes just a few moments you kind of address that elephant in the room forgive the phrase and and then you 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 can move on to the interview and hopefully it is a quality interview with good questions and a great exchange where you're not going to have halfway through the interviewer um really wasting your time with some blindness related questions which does no more than demonstrate that they have still not gotten past your disability. And that's pretty disheartening because it means you're not going to get that job. Mm -hmm. Can you give some examples of successful interviews and then ultimately what jobs you went on to? Yeah. Um, yes, yes, I, I, I can. I was in a, I was at an interview once where uh, we were towards the end of the interview. Now, I did I did the piece I had mentioned, sort of taking a few moments to detail how my guide dog worked and a little bit about my technology at the beginning. And at the end of the interview, I said, "Is is there anything else I can tell you about before before I go? We're coming to the end of the hour." And he said, uh, "He said, can you talk to me a little bit more about the software on your laptop?" He says, "I'm just so fascinated." Uh, by by what it's capable of. Okay, and now I'm thinking, well, he was paying attention. That's good. He wants to learn more. That's better. And he and he's interested because that all that all says to me, he's not uncomfortable. He doesn't want me out the door. He didn't have to ask these questions. This is this is great. So I took a few moments to describe Jaws for Windows, which is what I what I had on my have on my laptop and he says after a minute he says he says that is just that is just the most incredible uh, piece of software i'm going to read about it online he says i'm not quite sure how it works but uh i can tell it's it really it it it, it makes it makes everything possible for you and i i said it did and and that that did lead to a job offer by by the way you, you can tell so much by someone's tone tone of voice right or maybe the tenor of their of the question you know if they say something halfway through such as so uh i, I guess your your dog's going to be barking at everyone who comes into the office i mean that's that's a pretty negative question right there and yeah i i i clarified and i said no no he'll be he'll be asleep and they are specifically trained to not do that but right there what's the assumption they're jumping to right if we hire this individual, they're going to be bringing this disruptive element to the office every day. That's that's a pretty negative framework. And, and I knew right there that this was probably not going anywhere. The successful interview that you had, was that as a result of the networking that you had undertaken? Uh, I, I actually, in, in that particular case, um, it it was not as it as it happened um i i was older then and i i basically made that that highly specialized 
networking-based job opportunities my go-to. That doesn't mean that every once in a while, because it's always great just to see what jobs are out there, you know, check on LinkedIn or what have you occasionally, keep that resume fresh. And uh, I, I, I stumbled upon something and like, wow, that looks fantastic. So you, I threw a cover letter together in 20 minutes and, and sent it off. Um, it, it, it ended up working out anyway. It, it definitely felt more, it felt more to the cold, uh, uh, the cold, cold contact uh, 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 interview, as opposed to one where I had uh, networking or a warm handoff through someone I knew. Okay. All right. Yeah. What yeah. was it that made, do you think that successful? Obviously the interview went well, but you yeah. said you were older at this point. Right. So was, was it mainly just your past experience that you were able to convey? It was. And, and I was also working at the time. And I think we might tend to interview differently if you um, uh, don't need the job as opposed to maybe when you do need the job. Mm-hmm. And that, that probably translates in the way we convey ourselves or our confidence or what have you. But I was a little older and, and wiser. And frankly, I went in and sat down with a bit of a, you know, hey, if this works out, that's fantastic. But if it doesn't, it doesn't. And, you know, I'm not going to lose any sleep over it, which is a great mindset to have. But it's not really a mindset we can choose, is it? I mean, if you're, if you're unemployed and you have to work, you're going to have certain uh, concerns and needs in the back of your mind. Um, it's unavoidable. It's unavoidable. Um, so watching for those little little cues throughout the interview, how is it going? How am I doing? Are they engaged or not? Um, there's a lot, you know. We, we, we convey quite a lot through what we say and the tone of voice we employ. Um, even I, I was going to say even the handshake at the end, but I, I guess we don't, uh, I guess we don't, uh, we're not going to be doing that any longer, but yeah, 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 yeah. You, you had mentioned earlier that you would yeah. recommend uh, blind visually impaired people seek out other blind and visually impaired people that have been there, done that. Oh, uh, did you have any mentors when you were younger and thinking no. about what type of career? No, no I did not. Yeah. Um, I wish I had, I wish, I wish I had, I didn't know. I didn't realize, I didn't realize the value I didn't know. Um, I didn't know, frankly. Let's talk a little bit about your first job because you're, yeah. as you're older and you have experience, you it's easier to, uh, like you said, convey that and and yeah, get that job. But initially, how did you start out? How did you get your start? And what were you doing? What was an the type in, of job you got? An, an internship through my law school directly led to my first to my first job. It was, it was, it was low paying. The job was for the same individual who supervised me in my internship. So it was a very sort of, um, it was a very easy handoff. The network had been made, the relationship had been established. And most importantly, they were already well aware of what I could do and how I did it. Um, now, that type of networking and that sort of established relationship with the knowledge of 
here, here's, here's a blind person who, who can do the following tasks. And I know because I've seen it. Um, that's really important. That's really important. Now mm -hmm. for my subsequent interviews, cause after, after that, after a year or two, I was ready for bigger and better things. And that is when I ran right into that wall, that wall of low expectation and of, uh, of stigma to use the, to use the word. And, uh, it, it, it blew, it blew my mind going to these, these interview after interview posts I'd found on monster and indeed.com, for example, right? No pre-existing networking, no pre-existing relationship. I would have given anything to have had sort of that, that blindness community contacts and network that I have now to, to sort of talk through what some of these experiences were like and how, how it made me feel. But mm -hmm. as I mentioned, in, in those days, I did not. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, you mentioned that nowadays you're involved with uh, helping young people to find yeah. jobs. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm the director for the edge program, which is an employment readiness program run by the family resource network. And that's in, in New Jersey. It's, a program funded by the New Jersey Commission for the Blind and Visually Impaired, uh, but run by the Family Resource Network. And, and we work with uh, high school and college students um, who are blind or low vision, who are referred to us by the New Jersey Commission for the Blind and Visually Impaired. And we work with them on a variety of employment-related skills, including communication, networking, uh, interview skills. Uh, we introduce them to different careers and, and professionals from all types of different fields. Um, we talk about professionalism and uh, professional appearance and attire. I mean, we, we cover quite a lot over the course of the year. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that is what I, what I do now professionally. Um, it's a little unusual. I mean, as I told you before, environmental law was where I thought I was headed. And now I'm, I'm working in this magnificent program um, with a great staff and, and working with these, these fantastic students who are interested in picking up and learning some of these skills. So after high school or after college, they can get out there and have the best shot possible at gainful employment. Can you tell me a few of the success stories that you've had for people coming out of the EDGE program? Absolutely. Um, so what's interesting about, about the EDGE program, and of course, is, as we had discussed, employment readiness skills for blind and low vision students in New Jersey. Um, so that, that means a lot there, right? I mean, that covers a wide range of skills from um, – interviewing and communication and resume writing through uh, understanding finances, independent living skills. I mean, there's, there's a ton there. And every student who comes to the program is coming with a different set of interests and strengths to say nothing of backgrounds, right? Socioeconomic backgrounds, skill set backgrounds. So one student might have certain strengths in one area, and interest in another direction. And maybe there's a, another set of skills that could really use some strengthening and, and some development. And then student number two and three would have completely different 
uh, lists of, of, of strengths and, and skills for development. So the key to make it work is to really look at every student individually and take each as a case, case-by-case case basis. Now, how that translates back to your question is what success means can be tremendously different student mm-hmm. to student to student. Maybe, um, maybe the, 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 this point of success, what we're looking for is uh, a student graduates from college and, and they get, and they get a job, right? And they, they're able to sort of leverage some of their experiences or maybe something they've done like an internship into actual full-time employment. And we have, we have those situations, those success stories to use, to use your, your phrase. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's fantastic because I mean, that's, that's pretty, pretty definitive. That's, that's pretty solidly a success story. Uh, somebody participates in this program, they master these skills, they get these opportunities and they end up with employment right after graduation. Other students, maybe, um, it might be about, um, uh, the, the development of particular skills or, or picking up enough of a skill set so they, they've got, uh, they've got, uh, they're independent or have a greater level of independence than they had maybe when they started, started the program. And, and maybe they're interested in, in ultimately, uh, uh, ultimately, of course, being employed, but, um, it might be a longer road to develop those skills and to develop that independence and maybe on their journey, there might be something like um, a stay at one of the, uh, uh, one of the independent living centers, you know, and there's, there's of course one in state and there's uh, several throughout the country of note. So, so success can look pretty different for each student, depending upon who they are and where they're coming from and maybe what some of their goals are. Um, I, I would, I'd be happy uh, to, uh, if this is a point of interest for you, maybe putting you in touch with a few of the students who have graduated from college, who have graduated from the EDGE program, and, and you might enjoy um, speaking to them and, and hearing a bit about their experiences from their perspective, if, yeah. if you want, of course. Yep. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That would be fantastic. So what are the age ranges of people that are participating in the age, EDGE program? 14 through 21, they, they age out on their 22nd birthday. And okay. uh, that, that means some of them, depending upon uh, how things worked out, some of them might, might graduate from college before they turn 22. Um, many, though, do turn 22 when they are uh, still, still in the program working with us, which means... Uh, they are no longer officially part of the EDGE program. I do need to close their referral. Um, and, and then they might have another semester or two uh, without, without the EDGE program uh, uh, being part of the EDGE program. Okay. Okay. So at what point do most people start engaging with the EDGE program? And, I guess, and how, how would somebody uh, seek you guys out and get in touch with you? So some of the students we work with uh, come to us when they are freshmen in high school, when they are 14. Um, others, maybe it's later. We might, we might not um, meet them or hear from them until they're 
you know, 20 or even 21. You know, maybe they're a sophomore in college by the time they are. They are interested in being part of the EDGE program. To, to be part of the EDGE program, uh, the student does need to be um, blind or, or low vision. They do need to be a New Jersey resident. They do need to have a case open with the New Jersey Commission for the Blind and Visually Impaired. And then their counselor through that agency, the New Jersey Commission for the Blind and Visually Impaired, needs to then refer them to us. So there are a number of, um, of requirements. And then uh, once, once uh, they, all those boxes are checked and they've been referred to us, um, we then have a meeting with them. We go through an intake process. Uh, sometimes we have a bit of a waiting list. There, is a, there are limits, uh, uh, number limits. And we will, uh, once they're in, we will, we will work with them until uh, they are no longer eligible. And eligibility ends if their case with the Commission for the Blind and Visually Impaired is closed or on their 22nd birthday um, or they move out of state. You know, there's, there's a number of ways uh, eligibility uh, can end, can stop. Okay. Okay. So w- what if somebody is working with the EDGE program and then yeah. and they're in New Jersey, but then they choose yeah. to go to a college that's out of state? So, yeah, that's a that's a fantastic question and and highly relevant now these days, right? With with colleges being being uh, remote and so on. Um, the 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 simple answer is, if they are going to college out of state, they are not eligible for EDGE program services. Um, there are several exceptions. Uh, for example, um, it is. We, we have had EDGE students that are attending college in New York City and in Philadelphia. Um, but I do emphasize those are more, those are exceptions to the rule. Um, the, the, the important take home is if they're going to school outside of the state, they are not eligible for EDGE services. Okay. Okay. All right. So, so mainly staying in New Jersey, fully That's high right. school and college. Okay, great. Right. And and uh, I I omitted to mention a full time college student by the way um, mm-hmm. to to be eligible for uh, edge services have to be a full time college student. Okay. Okay. All right. But that's good for people to know how the, the kind of the general path works to get yeah. involved with the edge program. Mm-hmm. So that's great. Mm-hmm. How many students are able to participate in the edge program at any given time? Yeah. So so that that's a good that's a good question. Are the maximum number of students we can accommodate is 106 students. So it's a good number. It's a good number of students. Um, we're currently working with about 100. So we've got we've got some availability, but there, there are there are some limits as to um, uh, uh, how many what what we what we max out at. Mm-hmm. After the first job that you got. Yeah. Through the internship. Yeah. What uh, what types of jobs did you have after that? A woman I went to law school with, she and I uh, co-founded a legal not-for-profit in in Trenton, specializing in Social Security benefits and veterans benefits. After after that, I I I worked at the Seeing Eye in Morristown, New Jersey, for several years, um, where I was part of their donor and public relations team. 
and I was involved in donor and student relations and in fundraising and in uh, the advocacy work that the CNI does. After a few years working at the CNI, I uh, practiced law on my, on my own. In one of our previous conversations, you had mentioned that you were doing some uh, personal training for some, yes. some extra cash and kind of on yeah. the side. Yeah, that's right. So years back when I was, when I was still, in, still a student, I became certified as a personal trainer and then later certified as a, as a spin instructor, um, sort of monetizing my, my hobby and my interest, frankly. Um, and and I, I, I would uh, work with clients at my local gym or teach spin classes. Um, really a fantastic way to uh, make a couple of bucks, um, share some of my, my knowledge and my interest about my, my hobby and my passion with people who would like to hit some of their own personal fitness goals, uh, whether that's just feeling better or losing some, some weight or maybe eating more healthy. Um, so, so I, I, I love doing that. Um, the chance to, to work with people towards those goals on those topics. Um, and, and you get to make a couple of bucks doing it on the side as well, which is just fantastic. Now, obviously for the last year, I, I have done neither of those things, unfortunately, but I, I hope to get back into it once everything opens back up and, mm-hmm. and, and so forth. Um, being blind, I find, has not really been a barrier at all to, to, either, uh, to either area. For teaching a spin class, you know, spin class is really no more than coordinated stationary cycling in a room with music playing. And there's only there's only a few things you can change on your spin bike, right? You can change the pace or the resistance and then the position. There's a few positions. And the the instructor talks everybody through that. And frankly, a lot of spin classrooms are in in low light or darker. And so not being able to see really was not an issue, frankly. Um, doing personal training, working with people there. Well, that, that was, um, we always have to have the conversation initially pertaining to, I'm going to need to keep my hand on your arm or back or shoulder on occasion. So I make sure you're, your form is right. Because mm-hmm. if you do not have good form, not only are you not going to get a good result, you could run the risk of injury. So being able to monitor somebody to ensure their form is correct is, is essential. It's crucial. And you have to have that conversation initially because if they're not comfortable with, you know, occasionally I have to touch your forearm or I have to touch your upper arm or your back then it's not going to work and you can't do it. And that's not a client that you're going to be able to work with. Um, sure. But I found most people were absolutely fine. And, and I, we would have that conversation and every once in a while, someone would say, well, I'm, I'm not sure. And I would recommend, you know, one of the other personal trainers and uh, but, but quite a few were, were absolutely fine with it. 
I hope we can all learn something from my conversation with Pat today. I know for myself, my takeaways are that the interview process can be tough and focusing on quality over quantity will lead to better results. Also, I had not heard about the EDGE program. And this really emphasizes to me that there are a lot of services out there through the Commission for the Blind that I'm not aware of, but that could offer substantial benefit to many people out there. So make sure to reach out to your state's commission to make sure that you're aware of all the services that they offer. I hope you come back to hear more inspiring stories from other blind and visually impaired people. And thanks for listening.